This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the X and Ramia Entertainment, Lifestyle, and Great Conversation, it's AMI's on air community, and everyone's invited. Thanks for being with us, folks. It's uh, the kickoff to this edition of Kelly and Ramya. Uh, we are here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, repeated the program on AMI-TV at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can find us for the first time on AMI-audio at 4 p.m. Eastern, where you can listen in around the world, and we appreciate wherever you are checking out the show and joining us. It's a good thing. Today, joining me, since Ramya is away, is Brock Richardson. You can catch Brock weekdays on Now at Day Brown, delivering sports, and on our show on Fridays with a sports report. So, uh, Brock, I think it's apropos <laughs> with Ramya away and you being the sports guy. We talk a little who's up, who's down. Uh, I, I get that from a podcast I listen to, the Marshan and Iran uh, Sports Media Podcast. If you like that kind of thing, folks, check those guys out. Wonderful thing. They drop a new one on Wednesdays. Um, sir, what I want to talk about are the Milwaukee Bucks yesterday, but more importantly, Adrian Griffin, former coach with the Toronto Raptors, he has been coaching the Milwaukee Bucks so far this season, 30 wins, 13 losses, and you want to talk about someone who's down? Well, he got let go yesterday, even though his team has the second best record in the NBA East. What do you say? I say I'm shocked. Um... You don't see that almost ever that you have a guy who is got like more than double the amount of wins versus losses moving on. I I have to say, Kelly, that I really feel that there's something there's movers and shakers happening. There was something going on. Maybe Milwaukee wanted someone else. Maybe so, like I, I really don't know. I cannot cannot make sense of this at all whatsoever so it's just very odd to me and i feel bad for adrian griffin because you know you don't hear a lot about assistant coaches but i really enjoyed him with the toronto raptors so yeah doc rivers one of the main candidates that they are pursuing so it is said at this time by the time you hear this folks who knows who they've settled on what they're doing um right now of course that stuff doesn't just happen overnight but Yes, firings do. Let's take a look at what we've got coming up today on the program. The TV show The Sopranos is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Greg David, he'll be here in a little while, and he'll give us a bit of a history lesson on the award-winning show. What are some of the oldest competitions in the world? Best year lets us know on the buzz. And Edmonton Community Reporter Mark Workman shares information on a program that families can access to help ensure their children are welcome in daycares. That conversation to kick off hour two of today's program. All right, so I at one point heard for Halloween there's no more co certain costumes you can't dress up in. Well, police officers are one of them, but here's somebody taking it a little bit too far as this Texas man who has been accused of impersonating a police officer. Well, this guy's been arrested. 
Images posted to social media show a smiling Sean McDonald in his Austin police uniform, complete with name, patch, walkie-talkie, and badge. The uniform is pretty accurate. But, says Austin Police Detective Brendan Solis. The uniform was not acquired through any means of the department. Solis says the 35-year-old McDonald has been identifying himself as an Austin police officer since at least 2020. An affidavit suggests McDonald was posting the pictures on dating apps. Investigators want to know how far the impersonation went. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Those darn Texas McDonald's. Uh, okay, pal. Uh, very interesting when you see this kind of thing because, you know, there's always people out there that really in their own way respect and appreciate and aspire to be certain people, whether it's in the medical profession, law enforcement, you know, that, that person that wants to be that private detective or save people's lives one way or another. Um, I just love the fact this guy's been doing it for a while and we just say, no, no, what, what the heck? And we've seen in this country really bad when we've mistaken somebody. I can't even say mistaken when we've been led to believe someone's a police officer and things go very, very bad. It's one thing, Kelly, when you and I, you know, growing up in each of our younger days of like playing radio and wanting to do radio and that's what you did and you you played shows. It's a whole other thing to to enact law enforcement and take it another step and say, I'm going to do this, and then to play it out, like that can really set some people off in a real bad way. And so it's kind of a scary thing that this happened, not only in general, but just for how long it may have been happening itself. So pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah and, and and getting away with certain things, and I don't know if people kind of just, hey, Sean, or how many people bought into his shtick and what he was doing. Um, and, and again, a lot of time when people will sort of shake their head, eh, is he really causing harm? But we're not supposed to be doing that, folks. And this is something, especially when you have a badge made up, no, they, they call that illegal. And unfortunately, you're <laughs> posing as a police officer. Funny enough, you know that's illegal. So uh, it's interesting to see and when you catch on. But more interesting to me, Brock, always with these things, is how long someone got away with doing something and probably generally just being laughed off or totally the people that he encountered were naive to it. So uh, kind of kind of sad, but the police, they got their police. Uh, they got their office. They're, anyway, you know what I'm trying to say, folks. Coming up after the breaks, folks, <laughs> rideshare drivers are protesting difficult working conditions. I think this will get into a really good conversation with Brock, myself, and Grant Hardy, because he's got more on this during his headline segment in two minutes. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Subscribe to our podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Great place to listen to the show at your leisure. Also, take in the audio vanity card. We put that on the end of the full show podcast, but you can listen to the show in segment form. If you, you like our veterinarian or the guy that delivers sports on Fridays, sorry, his name eludes me at the moment. But if you like that, you can <laughs> check it out via the podcast. Just simply going, going back, folks. That's the Kelly and Rubia podcast. Subscribe. Maybe while you're in there, give us a rating and review if you would. Kelly McDonald from the home studio in London, Ontario, from the home studio in Kitchener, Ontario, Brock Richardson. There it is, Kelly. You didn't forget. Uh, it's time to talk headlines with Grant Hardy. Let's bring him on.
Hey, I'm Grant Hardy, and welcome to the Headlines segment. I tackle everything from health and lifestyle to accessibility and tech. I have it all right here on Kelly and Ramia. Hello, Grant. How are you? Hey, happy Wednesday. I am I am hanging in there. How about you guys? Doing pretty well for a Wednesday midweek, mm-hmm. you know? We're we're almost there to Friday, but we're just halfway there. So it's kind of six <laughs> of one, half a dozen of another. It'll it, it always seems much closer to Friday as Wednesday moves on. You know what I mean? Like as you get to like the middle or the end of the day. Like, even oh, in the morning, nice. right? Even though it's still the first half of the week, even in the morning, it still feels like, oh gosh, yeah, fuck it. Well, you, <laughs> yeah, you are an optimist. <laughs> I find <laughs> <laughs> I find from noon onwards on Wednesday that's ah. when you start to sort of feel See that. that. Me too. Okay, I'm at lunchtime, and here we go on to the next. Thing. <laughs> I mean, officially, you're right. I'm sorry. I feel it kind of first thing, but you're right. Officially, noon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of moving on, let's move on mm, to your first item, yeah, Grant. Probably, probably a wise choice. <laughs> uh, you know what? I thought this would. Uh, provoke kind of an interesting discussion, but I found an article about, uh, it talks about rideshare drivers, delivery drivers, people who work for these apps like Skip, and Uber Eats. Uh, there was a group protesting in BC outside of the la- uh, labor minister's office, and they're asking for better working conditions. Now, it turns out there actually is legislation in BC that was introduced last year, and it guarantees gig drivers 120% of minimum wage during engaged time, which means while carrying passengers, and compensation through WorkBC. It also provides more protection for drivers being kicked off an app and more uh, transparency about rides before you accept a uh, booking. But the drivers who are protesting say these changes do not go far enough that engaged time provisions only cover about half their time on the road, uh, leaving them not earning anything in between. Plus, there's sick time, there's vehicle depreciation, and gas, then GST, uh, benefits, vacation, all that stuff that these gig workers don't get. And they also would like more transparency from rideshare companies themselves about how the company is collecting from passengers, how much, and how much is going to drivers. and they have absolutely zero protection from companies who suddenly deactivate them from the app because the customer has said or rated them some way, depending on whether that was true or not. They have no idea. So I thought this would kind of be an interesting discussion because, you know, we often hear the flip side in the disability community, and understandably so, where drivers either are not willing to help us, they deny access to people with who have service dogs, uh, etc., which of course is unacceptable. But I think it's kind of interesting the gig economy and some of the consequences about it that we haven't really thought of, where we literally have mm-hmm. these apps that could use like AI or who knows to determine like, are you allowed to work? Are you not? Who do we give the work to? And especially for people with disabilities who often take gig economy jobs and I think that we've, I don't know what you guys think, but I basically think that um, people lose out, like workers lose out because they're not protected. Mm, I think that's the big thing. Um, to save money, to make these things 
affordable for companies to do, economically sensible, it means somebody gets left out of whether it's uh, benefits, whether it's the manpower to kind of police whatever said service. So you get somebody who doesn't have time to answer the calls, field the complaints, you then hear the argument of the driver. You get a lot of these reasons to make it impossible to actually talk to the person. So like you say, using the AI to answer your questions when you file your complaint, and that includes the driver. The driver who has been made to feel, oh, well, you have such a great opportunity to come here and make some money. All you have to do is do it right. True. Yeah. True. But when yeah. things go sour, you still deserve explanation. Hey, somebody complained today because, and, and sometimes, let's be fair, you have people who do that trying to look for some money back, trying to look for some kind of whatever. They didn't like the, the fedora you were wearing in the front seat, so they're like, get that off of there. That guy looks like an idiot. I don't trust him driving me. Whatever it might be, um, you know, I don't know. And said driver, Tim, who has been accused of doing this and that and whatever, does not have any recourse because we as a customer, I say this happened, what do you say? They want you to come back. Driver, they're probably someone else who will take your gig if you get mad or you're just you know, angry well, and I'm, I'm not gonna book in for a few days. That's exactly one of my other points too, was that you know, you you take about you know, look at union jobs or, you know, other jobs where you can, yes. you can strike. And, you know, a few people might go past the picket lines, but they're, they're very, very low. Or not, not necessarily agree but, with the strike, but this is the but, formula. This is what you, with the job, like we've talked about it as broadcasters over at CBC, you don't do stuff because the union's in there, different unions, mm -hmm. and you're on air. You don't go reach ground. I'll just, you know, tighten this knob. It seems to be coming loose. no. There's a, a somebody who's protected by their union from you messing around like that. That's their work. Exactly. But these guys don't have it, Grant. They they don't have it, and you would never know one way or the other. The only thing you could mm -hmm. do is just not log on to your app. I mean, they don't really care one way or the other, and someone else is going to take that job. I think, I think there has to be a little bit of the whole, you know, there has to be that protection of, for he or she word against the driver's word. I do think there is something because you don't want to give too much power to the passenger because the driver still gets a vote. The part where I struggle, Grant, is the whole uh, when you don't have a passenger, you you don't you don't get paid. I kind of like I kind mm -hmm. of understand that only because I live in a world where when you're contracted you do the work, you get paid. If you're not doing the work or you're coming to work, therefore I'm not getting paid. The difference is in their situation, it's a, well, I have to drive to get to said place to do my job. So I think there's a bit of both there for me, a bit of column A, column B, but yes, for sure it's a, you need to protect the driver with a the complaints because a lot of the time they take the, the passenger. Why, as we've all said, because they're the ones that are paying the dollars for the rides and the business. Well, you exactly. also feel, Grant, like the driver, nor us as passengers or customers, have an easy route to file, whether it's a complaint, to rebuttal about something, to clarify something or clear something up, or to defend oneself. It, it It's almost the mechanism that, as Brock mentioned, being a contract you, you know, employee in, in some form or uh, someone in this gig economy, it's almost like, well, since you're not a full-time, you're not um, that kind of position, not protected by a union, 
<laughs> these are the rights. And I know it, this goes beyond complaints and whatever. There are other workplace uh, issues that the rideshare drivers uh, have been having. Exactly. I just one other thing to add here is that I, I know we've kind of talked about this before, that when you have some sort of system that's not very flexible, it often can hurt marginalized people more. So for example, um, if the driver is being a nice person, as they should be, and perhaps, you know, get out of their car to help you as someone who maybe has a disability, help you directly to the location, which might be across the street, whatever it is, you know, all that does is, uh, you know, unfortunately adds a couple of extra minutes on their trip where the app is thinking like, why are you being so slow or why don't you seem to be moving? Why aren't you accepting your next trip? Whatever it is. Uh, and that's difficult because I don't think there's really any way in the system to kind of indicate like I am doing, my I'm job. giving I'm assistance. Just, exactly. You know, and, and it's hard because so much of that grant used to be part of jobs like that, getting out of the car mm -hmm. to open the door for somebody, um, you know, whatever it might be where this system is a, basically we see you pull up out, they go because everything's paid for via card. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The other thing, the other thing that I would just say here on this, and and maybe both of you can weigh in, is that when I drive in a cab, I find that they drive tremendously slow, and the first reaction of the companion that I'm with is usually, oh, it's because they want to make more money, and when there's no passenger, they're driving around like crazy people, which is stereotypical, of course. But I often wonder, too, yeah, but are they doing that on the basis of, look, I have somebody, in my case, in a wheelchair. I don't want to be liable to have them in an accident, so I am going to proceed with more caution versus not. And, and this is the, the, the struggle I that I have in my mind. all over the place, right? Like, you don't want yeah. that being something said either. It's, just, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I mean, also... Are you comfortable to tell the driver the route you want them to take? Well, that's um, just it. Uh, that's is, a big one is, for me. Is there a way that you can speak up while maybe feeling a little bit more vulnerable than average, let's say? Is is there a way? It takes it takes tremendous people skills and confidence to kind of navigate all of this and figure out. I don't what know how you do that. I don't know how you do that without making the person feel like you're disrespecting my job. Like exactly. that. Well, and but 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 in that point, you're renting this vehicle, you're paying for it. And my view is, yeah, but I'm paying for the gas you're burning up now. I'm paying for your time right now. You take the way that I want you today because I don't want to be in this car longer than I have to with you. What did you say? <laughs> oh, lots of. Uh... Lots of room to grow on this. Yeah, I, I actually uh, don't think that's a problem, Nick. To be honest with you, it, it, and for some drivers, I'm sure they appreciate it because then it's your responsibility. If you tell them, take this route, and they pull off onto it, and there's a traffic jam, oh, well, hey, you, they're just mm -hmm. doing what you said. Go ahead, yeah. Grant. Sorry, your next thing? Oh, no worries. Yeah, just really quick, and it relates to, to this as well, kind of on the flip side. Uh, in transit in BC, we've had a two-day strike where oh, the buses yes. have all been shut down. Uh, apparently, there's been very little progress in terms of talks, at least as of last night, and they're now thinking of picketing at our train stations, our sky train stations, like your subway, which would mean those would also be shut down. Uh I guess I'm kind of preaching to the choir a little bit, uh, but I, I do find, 
I mean, listen, unions are incredibly important things, and I'm, I'm so glad that we have access to those and the workers have access to bargaining at the bargaining table. On the other hand, it really affects marginalized people, especially oh. in a situation like this, where if we were doing the show, you know, from the office, let's say, what, you know, what are you going to say? I just can't show That's up for it. a couple of days. So, Or the expense of cabs. The expensive cabs and Uber, you know, again, Uber has turned if on. If you can get the pricing. ride, right? Mm -hmm. If you can and the get the ride, expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things, Grant, that I've I've always look at. You have to have a right to be able to fight for what you're after. You have to have that mechanism, and I feel bad. But when you talk certain services, I still feel transit in any most circumstances out there is life and death. All right, it's not fair someone should lose their job, not fair someone can't make rent because they've had to be able to pay to go by transit because there's a strike. But I also understand that that union has a right to protect their 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 union members. Um, but I'm sorry, it's one of those things that I, I think is unfair, but it gets pushed aside because we treat people who ride transit sometimes in some places less than we do those who jump in their cars. Oh, yeah. Be nice to have a little yeah. more of a social safety net. That, oh, yeah, for sure. Good stuff. Grant, thank you. Have a fantastic rest of the show, guys. Grant Hardy joins us Wednesday and Fridays to flip through headlines. We step aside for a couple of moments, ladies and gentlemen. And you Sopranos fans, you've already heard a little bit about the buzz, you know, 25 years. Holy cow, as they celebrate that, it makes you stop and say, wow, does that ever make me feel old? Greg David, he stops by in just a couple of moments to give us a bit of a history lesson on the award-winning show. Sopranos Chat, next. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. of hosting this show is you go from one topic to another one subject one conversation sometimes you get to listen in more and oh wow other times you get to express and give some opinion or just kind of flashback kelly mcdonald here today brock richardson joining me on the program this is kelly and ramya and we're here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time and uh, remember first repeat of the program on the networks ami audio and ami tv 10 p.m. Eastern. Let's talk a little TV as we welcome in Greg David from our communications department. I'm Greg David, and I love TV. Join me on Kelly and Ramya, where we talk about the biggest hits, misses, and trends in television and entertainment. So I'm going to pretend 25 years is so, so long that I'm going to probably say a few inaccurate things or like, Bada bing, or, or what have you, as we talk about the 25th anniversary of The Sopranos. Greg, we welcome you back to the show. And I mean, quite frankly, most people should know. It seems like it anyway, that most people should know what this program is about, but probably we should do a refresher. 
Yeah, I think so. And I have to admit right off the top, guys, that I did not watch The Sopranos the first time it came around. I watched oh. the first couple of episodes. I was working at TV Guide Canada at the time, and I watched the series finale because everybody was talking about how it was going to be the series finale. So I tuned in to watch that. But yeah, when it was on the very first time on HBO, I didn't watch it all the way through. And so I think there's probably people out there that don't know too much about the show, but mm -hmm. they've heard the title. So the Sopranos follows this character named Tony Soprano, um, uh, and uh, he's a north uh, northern uh, New Jersey-based Italian-American mobster uh, who tries to balance his family life with his role as the boss of the Soprano family, the mob family. And uh, when we first meet up with him in the first few episodes, first season especially, uh, he's suffering from pa from panic attacks. And as a result, he's uh, participating in therapy sessions with a psychiatrist named Jennifer Melfi. And that's how we kind of learn about his life um, through him talking to and and what he's been going through and why he has these panic attacks uh, while he's talking to the psychiatrist. And um, it's funny because he has like constant conflict with members of his family. Um, he's putting himself at risk all the time because there are other um, mobster families that want to take him down throughout the, the series run of the show. Um, he argues with his uncle Junior on regular occasions. Um, his wife Carmela don't always see eye to eye. And uh you know, the big one is that there's a New York family called the Lupertazzi family that wants to take him down and unseat him. So those are the types of things that he's dealing with through the run of uh, The Sopranos. Wow. Wow. Oh. I, I always find it so amazing because I think back to, as you say, Dr. Malfi, what a great device for us to get information on mm -hmm. what's inside the head of the character the feelings of the character, the vulnerability of the character. And I stop, Greg, and maybe you maybe you can come up with another show prior to this that use that device. I, I don't know if I can. Not so well anyway, but everyone uses it now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because like Newhart did it, or not Newhart, it was the Bob Newhart show, but that was done as right. like, he his character was that. His and it character. was done for comedic. Yeah, exactly. And as you were talking about that, I realized that this is probably one of the first cases of, you know, mental health being discussed kind of openly on a television show sure. in prime time and it not being like a, you know, a kooky, you know, plot device. This was serious. So yeah, I think that it was, you know, for, for several reasons, The Sopranos was groundbreaking and that's another one of them. And it was hard sometimes to, because at first, did we take that serious? What was the reason? And you, you fought yourself on it, and and still, 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 you just had to realize this is the person who needs it and is talking. Go ahead, Brock. So you mentioned that The Sopranos was uh, twenty five years ago, but you actually have the specific date. And let's also talk about where The Sopranos originally aired as well. Yeah, so uh, there were six seasons of The Sopranos, and they aired from January the 10th, 1999, until June the 10th, 2007, and uh, all six seasons uh, aired on HBO originally. Really funny, too, because the timing, it's something I have uh, had to get used to, the timing of the show could vary just that little bit, or was different than conventional TV time, as we know from the HBO products. The Sopranos were created by David Chase. How did he come up with this idea? 
Yeah, this is really interesting because David Chase has been in the had been up until that point been in the TV industry for a long time. Uh, he wrote and executive produced uh, on shows like the uh, the Rockford Files with James Garner, which I totally remember, and also a show called Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Oh yeah, which was Darren McGavin, and it was kind mm-hmm. of like it it inspired uh, Chris Carter uh, when he was younger to create the X Files. Um, so we'll talk about maybe that another time. But getting back to the Sopranos and David chase uh he originally thought of the sopranos as a feature film about a mobster in therapy and having problems with his mother um and but when he sat down with his manager lloyd braun they decided that it would make more sense to adapt it into a television series because you can expand it out and have a bunch of different characters that are that are interacting with tony soprano and so he signed uh, david chase signed a development deal in 1995 with hp uh, with it with the production company called brillstein gray and he wrote the original uh, pilot script and that was submitted to HBO. And he, as you know, they they say, write what you know. And so he was drawing Mm -hmm. a, a lot from his personal life and his experiences growing up in New Jersey. Um, the relationship between Tony Soprano and his mother, Livia, is based partially on Chase's own relationship with his mother. And uh, he was also in uh, therapy at the time and modeled the character of Jennifer Melfi after his own psychiatrist. So, you know, not having to reach too far, uh, you know, just back into his own past and was going on with his life at that time when it came to creating The Sopranos. Who was that racketeer that they brought on? The Rockford Files, Tony Gagliero or whatever, uh, years ago. It's it was from New Jersey as well. <laughs> it's there you crazy, go. you know. As as you, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of the show uh, due to my father. It was just tremendous. Mm-hmm. When you talk about what you saw, and 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 again, we of course you start when you see these mobster things. How much is stereotype? How much is what you wonder are you getting a peek from what the person gleans uh, from right. from that history like you said his history being in jersey yeah yeah you're absolutely right and as that series went on you know it, it just all of the local places it kind of became like lord of the rings and people wanting to tour the locations they wanted to tour the locations of the sopranos because it was all filmed largely in the in the new jersey area so as the show got more popular people wanted to find out more about it and, and find out you know how tr- how true is it and uh, and even if it isn't true let's try some of the let's go to some of the restaurants that these guys were filming in front of the cast of the sopranos was Led by James G- Good Ofini, and I hope I got that right. He became a household name. How did they end up on the series? Yeah, so James Gandolfini, uh, he was invited to audition for the part of, of Tony Soprano. Uh, the casting director for The Sopranos, named Susan Fitzgerald, saw a clip of his performance in the 1995 film True Romance, which if you have not seen that, you need to check that out. It's a great film. And so she thought that he would make for a great Tony Soprano. Um, Lorraine Bracco, who played the uh, psychiatrist, uh, she uh, played the role of a mob wife named Karen, uh, Karen Hill in Goodfellas, another great movie you should check that one out oh, yes. and she was yeah, she was originally cast to play Carmela Soprano um Tony's wife and um instead she uh, said that she wanted to take on the role of Dr. Jennifer Melfi because she wanted to try playing something a little bit different and um she felt that playing a character like Dr. Melfi would be more of a challenge for her so I know Kelly we've talked about this in the in the past about how casting you know the, if casting had been a little bit different how maybe the show would have been a little bit different as well um another casting note 
note, Stephen Van Zandt, who is fantastic as an actor, but to that point, hadn't had any acting gigs at all. You know, he was part of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. Um, they had reached out to him uh, because uh, he had inducted the Rascals into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and David Chase thought that he was hilarious and said, you know, I want you to be <laughs> on this show. And originally... Uh, he was thought to be David Chase had him in mind to play Tony Soprano, uh, but wow. HBO said, uh, "Yeah, HBO said, you know, we think that this role should go to a more experienced actor." So Chase wrote the new uh, a new character, Silvio uh, Dante, to to be played by Stephen Van Zandt. So can you imagine little Stephen Van Zandt from the E Street Band <laughs> playing Tony Soprano? Yeah. I'm not seeing it at all. Like, I mean, even no. physically, you want it. To, James Gandolfini is, is is a larger man and more of an imposing figure. So I think that casting, that was a good decision on the casting part. And I think you needed the experienced actor to catch those little nuances of, of yeah. Tony that you would see often, whatever it might be, the way he pronounces certain things, just the way his, you know... You know, if he snorts or whatever, like you got to have those character traits that really made up that guy and, and anyone now mocking, imitating, whatever, you, you kind of have that stuff to capture. And I'm not saying you, you wouldn't anyone else playing playing the role. You can always come up with those things. But boy, what a fit. Not only did the Sopranos push story, you know, a lot of ground in its storytelling. They broke yeah. ground all over the place. But the series finale is one of the most talked about ever Tony and his family are in a restaurant and put a coin in the jukebox and journeys don't stop. Journeys don't stop starts to play. Excuse me. And uh, it appears that a stranger may have walked into the restaurant. But before we find anything out, Greg, screen goes black here. Yeah, people are still talking about that that ending. Uh, you know, when Don't Stop Believin' came on, I was excited. I loved the song anyway. Um, so it was playing in the jukebox. It was it was cool. Uh, there was this mysterious figure that 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 is sitting up near the front of the restaurant, and at one point he gets up and walks towards the bathroom, which is where the Soprano family is sitting. So I'm thinking, okay, this guy's going to walk up to Tony and and kill him right there in front of his family. But instead, he goes into the bathroom, and like you said, Kelly, the screen goes black. Black and the song continues on. So people are still talking about what happened. And David Chase, you know, has been asked about it over the last 25 years and has been pretty cagey about it. He's never really committed to, to you know, what happened if the camera had continued to roll. And, uh, you know, for Journey, man, they made out like bandits because Don't Stop Believing saw mm. a resurgence in, in popularity after that and has stayed kind of at the top of the charts ever since. If you go on Apple Music, it continues to be in there. The uh, Sopranos, as you just mentioned, was groundbreaking at the time and responsible for bringing HBO to the forefront. Do you agree with this or do you think it's true? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things that we haven't really talked about is how Tony Soprano is like the ultimate anti-hero. I mean, the guy's mm -hmm. a criminal. You know, he if he's not killing people or ordering uh, killings happening, that you know he's doing that. He's ordering his guys to kill people. Uh, it's all about that power struggle. But in the way that he's portrayed and written by David Chase and portrayed um, by James Gandolfini, you can't help but cheer for him. So that was one of the major changes in storytelling um, and in in primetime television and cable television 
television in particular. Um, the Sopranos was a major rating success throughout its run, despite being on HBO, which you have to pay extra to have access to. It's not part of a basic cable package, uh, you know, so it, it wasn't available in as many households uh, down in the U.S. and, and here in Canada. Uh, TV critics resoundingly say that this is one of the most are, uh, influential artistic works of the 2000s, and it's it's credited with bringing serial television and and making it a legitimate art form, uh, kind of in the same uh, level as feature films, literature, and theater even. So those are, you know, huge kudos. And the success of The Sopranos meant that shows like Six Feet Under and The Shield and mm, Rescue Me yeah. could make it to the air and have those anti-hero characters that you couldn't help but cheer for uh, and, and make all of those sh- successful uh, on their own in their own right. Like, you know, Six Feet Under was on HBO, but The Shield and Rescue Me broke new ground on the channel FX and put that cable channel on the map. And if it wasn't for The Sopranos, um, uh, Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan said that without Tony Soprano, there would be no Walter White. And Vince Gilligan is the creator of Breaking Bad. So, you know, really, really high standards set by The Sopranos and its cast. Interesting when you think about Fox starting off with all, you know, with uh, Married with Children. You saw a total different look of a yeah. family that you would have expected. HBO, the only network I would have thought to put this on because of what HBO was in the 90s. This is the place you would see this kind of anti-hero or, or programming, sort of like The Simpsons, too, with going back to Fox. So I, I do get that, Greg. Is there anywhere we can watch The Sopranos? Yeah, if you're paying a little bit extra per month, then you get Crave. You can get all six seasons of The Sopranos uh, because they're available there. So yeah, check it out. And I also gave you a bunch of other things that you should be you should be watching as well. A couple of movies in there for free. Awesome, Greg. Beautiful segment. Thanks a lot for the chat, and uh, we'll look forward to see what happens next with The Sopranos and that cult following it has. Take care, pal. Thanks a lot. Join Greg David every other Wednesday to talk all things television here on the program. Up next, what are some of the oddest competitions in the world? Well, you know who's going to let us know about that. Beth Deer joins us next on The Buzz. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Catch the Pulse this Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific over on AMI-audio. This week on the program, in the second of a three-part series on accessible fashion, Joita speaks to Wendy Wong, founder of June Adaptive, on her creative choice and journey. That's the Pulse, folks, this Saturday and Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, 11 a.m. Pacific on AMI-audio and on your favorite podcast platform, and you can even check their show out on YouTube. Kelly McDonald here today with Brock Richardson. Beth joins us Wednesday through Friday at the bottom of our first hour to talk about interesting topics from around the world. She brings us a variety of topics and we just never know where this might go. Beth, hello, how are you? I'm great, thank you, Brock. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Awesome. So our first story today it's not a super exciting story, actually. No, it, I don't know about exciting, but it's just one of those stories that really kind of like made me think. Made me think. A Vancouver mm-hmm. resident says that hospital that the hospital is discharging patients onto a street bench. 
A resident who lives uh, Van near Vancouver General Hospital says he regularly witnesses hospital staff and security discharging patients onto a street bench. They rush them. Uh, they rush them to the bench, and they are left there to fend for themselves. Sometimes in not much more than a hospital gown. Um, that he says that they're shouting commotion because um, he can hear it from his balcony. Uh, when it comes to the police and kind of like other services, he has reached out to them, um, and a lot of the time they take a quote unquote, uh, you know, they take note of it is what they say um when the news outlet that wrote this article uh reached out to the hospital uh for an interview they responded with an email saying vancouver coastal uh health vch or whatever it's called is uh committed to the delivery of safe quality and compassionate care especially to our uh region's priority population um this it's really tough because i mean i i'm sure there is a reason as to why these patients are being discharged onto a bench maybe they don't have anywhere to go maybe they're causing disturbances that was another thing that was mentioned in the article was you know if if they're trying to get patients to leave and uh, they're, you know, protesting or giving them a hard time, um, they can unfortunately just kick them out. So I have a feeling that maybe this resident that lives across from the hospital has, you know, mainly been witnessing that, which still sucks. <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's just such a sticky situation. Well, it's weird, it really Beth, because we but. hear this all the time when people go to emerge or go to urgent care in some capacity and they're waiting and they talk about the different people that they see. And we understand, um, uh, of course, our, our drug crisis going on, mm -hmm. the addictions that are happening. We understand mental health crises many people are involved in. We understand people waiting, but we also understand that some of us, hey, I've got this problem. Oh, you're back again this week, Mr. McDonald. Well, nice to see you again. Come on in. Let's <laughs> and, you know, after a while, those, I, you know, you wonder how many of them do they have their little process to get them in checked, satisfied as much as you can, and out the door to deal with some of the other problems. And that's kind of what I wonder. Like, it, it, you know, they speak of the care, and I don't know that that same person doesn't leave the bench, go around to the front and go back into urgent care, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know. Exactly. Uh, but what a scary the, the situation. Cha the challenge, though, is that, like, the optics of it. Like, I can understand oh. the whole... No, maybe there's nowhere for you to go. And the person that's noticing this from afar doesn't know the conversations that may have occurred before, after, whatever. But the optics of it, of just seeing someone be left on a park bench, like, I don't know. I just think maybe, the, and, and this is just me, you know, Brock Richardson thinking out loud, but maybe there's an option where you can give someone, you know, a bus fare to get somewhere other than a park bench like I, I outside of the hospital like there has to be something and i do understand the whole you know if there's nowhere to go there's nowhere to go but mm. the, the hospital wow, gown thing's kind of yeah. odd too isn't it would be weird i uh brock you've kind of just made me think of something like i know that like some hospitals have programs uh like with homeless shelters so you know like they aren't just releasing them onto a park bench and mm -hmm. like i'm really surprised that like such a kind of like main 
city like Vancouver and I'm sure this is a very like busy hospital I'm really surprised that they don't or haven't necessarily thought of that or no one's arranged a plan like that because Vancouver especially like I know all the major cities have such a huge homeless I don't want to say problem but problem Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and yeah like if they've just been in hospital you can't just chuck them out onto the streets or you can but then I also like when I was reading through it I'm like I I know like it's the higher-ups that you know at the end of the day make the rules but like these poor nurses and doctors that like have to be the ones to like be the messenger if you will and actually like get these patients to like leave like that's not part of their job description. Well, it, it's weird I mean? to me like, when you hear they're in gowns. Like you stop and think, okay, say someone mm-hmm. had a crisis in the middle of the night and they went in their pajamas or, or you know, even whatever. Uh, okay, I, I get that, but you're going to put these people outside. I understand they may not have clothing, but that's when you may have to toss someone in a cab to go specifically to somewhere. That kind of just seems strange mm-hmm. to me. Really odd that, you know, if someone comes there legitimately has an issue and you're leaving yeah. the hospital, okay, you're, you're, we've, you know, sewed up your wound or whatever, out you go. Okay, but no clothes? Where, what's going on? And that, that in itself is a very like, strange red flag. Still, like, shouldn't everyone leave with, like, whatever they came with? And, like, yeah. is it such, like, a terrible situation that a person genuinely came with absolutely nothing, not even clothes? Yeah, you would think like, it would be something that would happen with the places that we have, that whether hospitals need to stock clothing of different sizes and stuff to give somebody something, but you're sending someone out in a in, in a hospital gown, uh, something's weird there. I'll, I'll I know. And like I, sorry, Brock, go ahead. I'll finish this from my end and say, I have always subscribed to the theory of treat somebody how you want to be treated, mm-hmm. and I and I and I was gonna. And I was going to use the, you know, the thought of what if that's your mother, your father, you, like, is that what you want? Whoever's making the decision. But then as I as I was thinking this through, I thought, no, treat somebody how you want to be treated. Would you want to be left on a park bench with, you know, nothing but the gown on that, you know, the hospital mm. gave you? Like, I just think we have to stop and think, yeah, you may be overrun and you may realize there's nothing else for you to do. Treat someone how you want to be treated, and I can guarantee you that if you were the person making the decision that ultimately had that problem, you'd be livid and, and be the first to say, well, this is wrong. Well, it's wrong for everybody. Yeah. And so yep. Yep. something Treat a person like yeah. a human. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, is, like, everybody is someone to somebody, right? Like, it's it's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. The last thing I will say is like how I was saying, like, I'm surprised the hospital hasn't like come up with a program to help people and, you know, at least send them to somewhere, even if they do end up back on the streets, like at least they've done their part. I'm also really surprised that articles like this have come out and organizations that are in the business of helping people in tough situations. I'm surprised that they haven't kind of come forward and said like, Hey, like, this is what we do. Like, let us know, and like, we can help out. Uh, let do you us know what I mean? assist in some way. For heaven's sakes, whether it's donated clothes, shoes, or just a, a, a cab slip, or or some money to go to a place nearby where that help is there. Um, Beth, what else do you have for us? Yeah. 
Um, so next up, a bear was rescued um, from an abandoned zoo in Ukraine um, and is now living in the UK. So a bear was trapped in a zoo in Ukraine uh, that had been hit by shelling. Um, and this Scottish uh, zookeeper saved this bear. So I don't know if I'm saying this right. The Asiatic black bear was discovered when Ukraine soldiers um, entered the village of Yampol. Um, which had been under Russian occupation for five months. Uh, the striking bear um, had black fur and was given the name of the village. So I'm assuming the bear is called Rampal. I think it even uh, did say that later on in the article. Um, and this poor bear was unconscious when they found him because he had actually been hit by some of the shelling. Um, but... There is a zoo in Scotland that um, managed to get the bear over there. They've given him a super safe home. They did say um, that after bears have experienced things like this, they can then suffer a lot of like mental health issues, which I don't know why. I did find that kind of surprising. Like uh, I knew bears were clever, but I didn't realize they kind of had like the men like the mental capacity to be necessarily like emotionally impacted by it i don't know if that's i think it's the shock right me, like but, like i yeah. think it's like the shock of anything like you know and again you know that or you know how they'll say oh if your cat does this spray it with water or something crazy like that to deter it from doing something but that's all basically playing on the mental state of an animal shocking it yeah deterring 100%. it by i don't like that so stop going i'm scared of that thing mm -hmm. absolutely um but yeah, they were. They said the most important thing to them was obviously, excuse me, the bear's mental health, and mm -hmm. he is doing fantastically. They said that they all let out a huge sigh of relief when he was let into his new enclosure, and nice. he um, was chomping on a cucumber and yeah, loved it. Was loving life. They are now building him. They've they've started a, a fundraiser for the new um, enclosure for the bear, um, and it's going to be massive. Um, so they're kind of waiting for him to go into hibernation so that they can build the rest of that and give him like the life that he deserves. I just thought it was a really nice, really nice story. That is. That's really nice. And when you think about, well, Brock, we don't think about enough situations where animals are put into some kind of trauma. Uh, we think, oh, the boy, all the, the boats going and the screws turning. Boy, the sound of that must be a lot of noise for the fish and stuff like that. So I think we can get a hold of that. But when you get something like this happening and injury or even the sound of or the, the disruption that it causes an animal, we I don't think we think about. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the whole point of the importance of zoos. Some people will sit there and say, "Well, they're they're trapped. They're not, you know, they're not they're not um, safe, and it's inhumane." But an example like this makes me realize why zoos are important. Because if the zoo didn't intervene here and help this animal, where would it be? It'd probably be you know, uh, deceased on, on a road somewhere, unfortunately, or whatever. So this is why zoos are really, truly important. And I think people forget sometimes. It's like, oh, yeah, but there's a reason because this this animal can't be released. That's what we all have to remember and take away from it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And 
honestly, like it's such a, it's kind of like, not like the disability community, but kind of for those animals that need like extra help and they can't go back into the wild. Like it gives them a safe space that otherwise they would not have had. Yeah, like absolutely. such a niche little community. Mm-hmm. Beth, thank you so much. As always, great stuff. We had great conversation. We can only get to two articles, but you'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Buzz. I sure will. Thanks, you guys. As I mentioned, that's Beth Deer, and she'll be back for another edition of The Buzz tomorrow at this time. And Brock and I will step aside for a couple moments, and we'll be back to carry on the second hour of the program. In that hour, how can we combat the winter blues and how can our employers help us out alicia yardley of ami's hr department tells us more and canadian para athletes are set to be financially rewarded for winning medals at uh, paralympics folks brock and i will get into a discussion on this news also but up next edmonton community reporter mark workman shares information on a program that families can access to help ensure their children are welcome at daycares. That in two minutes. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. out at the home studio in London, Ontario, ladies and gentlemen. Settle back in, and, and, and that rain is here now, so we're looking more like January with uh, what usually happens, the up and down temperatures. Brock Richardson, he's joining me today on the program. Remya's away, and Brock is at the home studio in Kitchener, Ontario. Fast to first hour, sir. Yes, always fun and always get to learn a little bit of something, so... It's always good. Looking forward to hour two, though. Mondays through Wednesdays, you know it's hour two, folks, because we get a chance to visit with our community reporters right off the top. And uh, today from Edmonton, we welcome in Mark Workman. Mark, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, Kelly? Hi, Brock. Oh, always wonderful to have you on. We're doing pretty good. It's uh, a nice midweek show. We're having lots of fun, lots of good conversations with everybody today. We're going to keep it up here. Uh, what's been happening? Where you been traveling to? Where are you going to? I am fortunate to be home uh, in Edmonton. Um, no plans for January, which has really actually been a bit of a nice break. It's a yeah. chance to catch up on some things. Um, but I, of course, do have upcoming plans. So for the first half of February, I will be away. Uh, on deck is uh, Dublin, London, and Lisbon nice, for about nice, two weeks nice. altogether. So we won't tell anyone the answer to this because it might mean, oh, Mark, sorry. If you feel that way, we can make a change. Do you get tired of traveling? <laughs> uh, it is exhausting. I've actually, I think I've I become bet. more used to it, though. Um, so when I first started, it was harder. It was causing me more stress and anxiety as well, right? Like with anything, you get more comfortable yeah. as you do it. Um, and so now I I feel like I am much more able to, to undertake the travel, but there's no doubt. And actually, what I think is the biggest challenge is your day-to-day -day job still goes on 
even though you're yes. away. So you're in right. meetings all day. There's usually stuff happening in the evening. So when do you have time to take care of the emails that are coming in to, you know, uh, work on different assignments? So that that is the biggest challenge is that you, th those things really pile up and then you're feeling a bit overwhelmed when you get home. Yeah. And I mean, the, the one month break or something like this that you're getting, this is great because you do need to recharge. Your body is doing those crazy things, not only time changes, but like you say, it's not just get up at seven in the morning, grab breakfast, get to work at the meetings and finish up, you know, shower and watch TV or go to fall asleep in front of it. Not every night. Uh, because like you say, you have those other commitments, you're there for a reason. And then off you go to the next location. Yeah, you bet. But, but definitely, I still... I still enjoy it, um, but I'm happy yeah, to have breaks every now and then. Yeah, and and what what you learn, what you see, what you experience, such yeah. an incredible privilege to to be able to do that and and take from place to place. But mostly, getting the chance to understand understand how the others think, work, and helping out with ideas and explorations. Fantastic stuff, yeah, Mark. Always love when you're telling us about yeah. it. I have uh, been to all three of those locations, so okay. you'll have a great great time it's, it's yeah. both all three are wonderful places your yeah. uh second to topic is discussing the aish program for those that may not be aware can you start by telling us what exactly aish is if you could you bet and so we call it aish here in alberta um and what it is is it's an income support program for people with disabilities. Um, it stands for Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped. And so given that unfortunate name, it's pretty much only referred to as AISH here in Alberta. And about 75,000 or so Albertans receive it. So that's uh, when you factor of a population well north of 4 million. It's less than 2% of the population uh, that receives it. And then one other point I'll make about it, because this is, I think, pretty interesting. Among programs like AISH that provide income support to people with disabilities, the Alberta program is actually the most generous. It's the highest um, income that is received um, across the country. So that's, I think, an interesting fact about AISH. Absolutely, and certainly a program for people with disabilities like this is important and uh, necessary, but a lot of things, as we talk about people with disabilities, become in the news. Why has AISH been in the news lately? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Um, first off, it is, and this is a great thing, it is indexed to inflation, and uh, that means it goes up when inflation goes up, which is important. Otherwise, your dollar just doesn't go as far from year to year. And so on January 1st of this year, uh, it went up by about 4.25%, um, according to the government, which is, like I say, very good news. But that's not the end of the story. Um, so a professor at the University of Calgary, someone who works in uh, a professor of economics, right? So very familiar with this uh, area crunched some of the numbers and found that I think it's something that people with disabilities know, but uh, that not everyone else knows. And that is that even if you're getting the maximum amount for AISH, it will still leave you with an income that's below the poverty line. And so this professor was able to show using Statistics Canada data 
and looking at the ish program that even if you get the maximum you're still going to have about five thousand five hundred dollars per year less than the poverty line and i want to stress that's even though ish is the most generous in the country and that's assuming you get the maximum benefit um, and like i said earlier i don't think this is news to people in the disability community i think a lot of people are aware that these programs while while they're very important um, still do not uh, enable someone to live you know with dignity um, but i do think it's great for people in the general public to learn this kind of information and hopefully it serves to destigmatize these programs a little bit and to understand uh, that while these programs are helpful, they still have a long way to go and we need to continue doing our advocacy work to um, promote and push for like a, a you know a living wage, someone that something that will allow a person to live uh, with dignity and above the poverty line. It's funny country. In a forward-thinking country like ours, it's hard to believe sometimes because you feel when someone says that living wage, well, you got that other person that says, well, yeah, but, you know, there's lots of work out there. And if people would be given the, you know, given the job or go after these jobs as if people with disabilities or in our in certain circumstances aren't trying, haven't tried. But I think sometimes we, you get that attitude as if. Well, what, are we going to give them enough money so they can mess off to Florida every winter and stuff like that? And we know that's not happening, but our society fights itself. So then, therefore, we always fall at making sure people are underserved. Um, that, that, that's Mark, the stigma for sure. Exactly. Mark, let's move into your other item that you've got here to round things off. You uh, flagged it's around children with disabilities and daycare. What sort of coverage are you sort of seeing out there about this topic? Yeah, we saw some media coverage earlier this month where parents of children with disabilities were saying they're having a really difficult time finding daycare spaces for their children. So some of them were reporting that you might have a child in daycare for a period of time and then quite suddenly, quite abruptly, uh, the daycare says, sorry, we can't uh, look after your child any further. Mm -hmm. And of course, this uh, when it happens, is causing a lot of stress for these parents. They are having to make difficult decisions. Do I stay in the employment uh, in, in my current role, or do I have to leave the uh, job market and and stay at home to look after children? Which, of course, that has an impact on uh, the economy as well. So there were some interesting reports about parents and their struggles in, in the media recently. Yeah. I Mark, I, I mean, I've heard this story, of course, we hear it with school or, hey, you can't go on this trip because we need X number of people to help give support and all these things we hear that whether there's even remote accuracy. Anyway, anyway, I, I, I've got to say, I, it definitely seems like a major challenge for families. Are there any policies or programs that are meant to help in this situation? Yeah, I mean, you're giving me flashbacks to when I was, you know, in elementary yeah. and I, said I couldn't go on the ski trip uh, because I had, you know, low vision uh, at the time. Um, we do have a program in Alberta called Family Supports for Children with Disabilities, or FSCD. Um, and this is actually a program that I was familiar with 
um, at my time at CNIB. Um, and a lot of parents of blind children may be aware of this program, but maybe for different reasons. It can be useful to help um, secure training for, let's say, learning how to use a cane or learning Braille or these types of uh, blindness skills that you want to learn. But what I learned through this research is that this program is actually available to daycares. So daycares can access the FSCD program. And through this program, they can hire additional staff, for example, if uh, if if the to make basically to make sure that every child in that daycare can receive the attention and the support that they need. So you might be able to hire staff, you might be able to purchase different types of equipment through this program. And that all sounds really great. Um, but of course, you know, like a lot of these programs, it can sound better or look better on paper than it is in the reality. And so some of the parents were sharing that they're struggling sometimes to get a hold of their caseworker. Um, maybe caseworkers are quite overstretched. Um, you might, uh, they noted that the caseload for FSCD has doubled, but the funding certainly has not doubled. And then, of course, one other barrier that, that's worth noting, and then I think we're hoping to kind of address through this conversation, is that you may not even know about the program, that's especially if you're, say, yeah, exactly. You might be new to Canada. You might not be familiar with these types of programs, or, or they may not have existed in uh, in the place that you're from. And so I think there's such value in just, you know, making sure that people know about these programs, because that's a sure way to guarantee that you won't have access to it is if you don't know about it. Yeah, and, and we're not even necessarily just talking the, the daycares out there. Someone watching right now might say, you know what, Fred's having that problem with, with their kid. This I better tell them about this. And I think this is the thing. We need that announcement, that trumpeting of these programs to, to get the word out there. Mark, thanks a lot. Absolutely wonderful segment today. Take care. We'll talk to you in February. Enjoy the trip uh, over to uh, Ireland, the UK. Oh, my God, Lisbon, everywhere. Have fun. All right. Thanks so much. See you next month. Our committee reporter, Mark Workman, from Edmonton, joining us. We talk to committee reporters Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, at the beginning of the second hour here on Kelly and Ramya. Up next, folks, Brock and I, we're going to kick around a topic. Brock was saving this for sports on Friday, but we'll get into it today. Canadian para-athletes are said to be financially rewarded for winning medals at the Paralympics. We have a discussion on this big and breaking news right after this. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. It's kind of funny, you know, today filling in for Ramya, we've got the sports guy, Brock Richardson, joining us here on Kelly and Ramya today. And it's it's funny when it's apropos. I mean, when subjects kind of just fall into alignment. We've told you folks this before. It's a, it's a star aligning thing that goes on. Just like themes. We'll get in something, we'll bring something in. Maybe it's our, our uh, CP item at the beginning, our news piece. Maybe it's a couple of the guests on the show. Maybe we just bring up a subject and just go right on through and you watch and listen. Say, oh, it's kind of funny how that leads from one thing to another, from headlines to to maybe uh, over to uh, Buzz or, or something. So, Brock, today we've got some fantastic news, some news I think that will surprise people as we look at the fact that Paralympians are going to be receiving money for the medals that they win. And, and not to buy them, folks, but to go along with um, 
And this is something that many people, Brock, would say, well, hold it. Don't they? What What's the story here? Isn't the, is this overdue? What, what's the deal? Can you explain to us what's actually happening? Yes. So what we're going to be talking about comes from an article from Devin Haru, who's uh, very involved in the Olympics, Paralympics uh, with CBC Sports. So that's uh, where we're going to go. Um, I, I want to just start by putting this out there. Olympians have uh, they started to get money when they won medals in 2008 uh and so this news now that paralympians are going to be getting the same financial breakdown so i'm going to give you the uh, financial breakdown here uh 20,000 for winning gold 15,000 for winning silver and 10,000 for winning bronze as i mentioned this is equal um uh, equal pay to the canadian Olympians. Uh, half the money is led by a donor, Sanjay Malayeva, I believe, and he's going to be donating. Uh, he's going to be matching two million dollar investment from the federal government. Plus, he's going to be uh, donating another uh, two million dollars to which the money has yet to be raised, but he'll be matching that as well so this philanthropist will be putting his own money into this and i really really think this is cool off the front kelly what do you say about this what i say is it's tremendous that he's matching i i go right to the, the contribution from this businessman from um hespler i think that's where he's from um yeah. uh, near kw near you um because the reason is it's just watching the athletes work, what they do, seeing how how much these para-athletes, all Olympic athletes, put into their time to do this. Um, it, it's just tremendous. It brought them to tears. So that involvement. Um, Carla Qualtro, comments that she has made about how long this is overdue. And Carla Qualtro, back in the late 80s, of course, um, in the Paralympics and and receiving as well as, as she uh, with as in her swimming efforts. Um, it's tremendous when you see so many people in our political sphere who've had to open their mouth and say, this isn't right. Now, we've talked about this in being fair when it comes to soccer, for example. How come the Canadian women, American women, are not paid in the same realm as the men are pay, playing for the, the representing your country? We, we hear this, Brock, and you say, oh, yeah, of course that's wrong. But yet, no one said for a while, even though people were, like Chantel Pedicure, were saying, hey, this is wrong, that these folks are not receiving money to win those medals. They work. They may get carded. They may get some support, which is nice for uh, the supports they need to train. But you're, you're, you're not going to give them something that other people get for representing the country? Let me all let me also put out there, Kelly. Um, I think people have a misnomer. Some people. I don't want to put everybody in a box. Some people have a misnomer that because you get carded, therefore it is a glamorous job, and you get two thousand dollars a month or fifteen hundred if you don't have a support attendant that you need. And so I think the thing that everyone looks at is. You get two thousand dollars a month times, 
you know, uh, you know, 12, that's, that's a significant amount of money. But I was carded for uh, two full cycles. And if I had $2,000 left over at the end of the, the year, I would be lucky. This was not a situation yeah, where I don't know like... how you could have it, Brock. I mean, when you're talking carded, you're, you know, I don't know how much, if at all, that interferes with if you're on disability. Um, it does not if, interfere, if the, which is I, nice. I, I would think not, right? Which would make sense that it wouldn't. I didn't think it did. Um, but when you talk about fees, gym fees, support fees, rental space, um, the access to whatever swimming pool you might need if you're a swimming athlete, month after month after month. And we're not just talking, oh, God, it's recreational swim, kids. Let's go swim Tuesday and Thursday night. We're talking you're in the pool for hours daily competing. You're at the track doing your thing, bro. You're needing that space that supports on top of that, whether it's hiring your coach or, um, you know, people who need other supports to be able to achieve. And and I'll let you carry on from there because I think you know being shocked of having any money left, still realizing it's a drop in the bucket of money that really, if you're representing your country and you're training, you need more. It is, and I think that you know we had to fight for getting five hundred dollars a month for our support attendant who had to take time off work, who had to take time out of their $500 a month is like really nothing, you know? Well, and there were the days small... Brock, where no one got anything. You trained right. because you wanted to be a Paralympian. You helped because you wanted to do the nice thing. Be because the dream was, I want to be a Paralympian. I want to stand on the top of the podium. I want to represent my country. That's the thing. And I look at a uh, swimmer, our, excuse me, Arlie Rivard, who uh, has won 10, 10 medals, she would have won quite a bit of money because if memory serves me correctly, uh, most of them or a chunk of them anyway were gold medals. So she would mm -hmm. have won a chunk of money. And I think people who will say, well, there should be some level of back pay, although I agree with that, I would also say people were doing this to pave the way for the future. And this, this is to happen. What what they get the payoff from? Chantel Petitclair has made enough of herself, and she's fine, and and she's you know still championing uh, Paris sports Paralympics. But she wanted this for the future. She doesn't care that well. I won X number of medals, and I deserve X. She she wants the medals for the future, and I think that speaks volume to to the community. At least it does for me that. You know, a bunch of these people were championing having no skin in the game in the sense of financial gain from it, like none whatsoever. So I think it's it's a good day. This has been something that's been talked about since I was at the Paralympic Games in 2012. Uh, so we're talking 10 years ago and we went through Rio, uh, you know, in 2020 and now we're going to Paris and finally we're here. So far, this has just been, you know, uh, people talking, and now it's literally put into action and saying we're actually going to do this because we have value in what our athletes are doing. So Petticler had to ask for this in the House um, as her being a senator. Uh, she gave a speech asking, anyone have any understanding as to how come 
Canadian para-athletes um, were not financially rewarded for their achievements. And I think that when you fast forward ahead and see that this is the starting point, I, I, I understand, hey, what about back? What about, yeah, okay, that'd be nice. But we know from so much building blocks, and, and I've been involved around para-sport for a very long time, certainly not entrenched in it by any stretch of the imagination, but it's been a part of my life, of my awareness and stuff like that since I was a teenager. And like I said, Brock, so many people were involved because I want to be. You know, I remember most of us, that was in our head, and if we had a place like a W. Ross McDonald School where it was just part of what you did. You started training, you did track and field. Hey, I'm hoping maybe I can qualify for the Paralympics or do some of the supports and start getting on the run to maybe qualify. And when you had those opportunities, you were just happy to be doing it. The thought of money to train, the thought of money if you won a, a medal, wasn't there. Wasn't a thought back then. Many people worked for this, including that talk Chantal gave, uh, you know, in the house, because it's all step step. So I do understand. Hey, you know, I'm not going to say someone could say, "Well, don't get greedy and want back pay and that kind of thing," because people deserve that kind of recognition if others were getting it. But we know the reality is it's baby steps forward, Brock, as you as you just explained to us. Yeah, and it is, and I mean, I think. Like like I said, the payoff becomes what's happening now, what's moving forward. And I think the thing that I, I want people to understand is there are hundreds of medals available at the Summer Games uh, specifically, uh, whether it's team sport, individual sports. Each of those athletes specifically on a team sport, just because it's deemed as one gold, silver, or bronze medal – each of those athletes will receive that designation with a team sport. There is a lot mm. of money being put forth here, rightfully so. But to go back, you're talking like <laughs> almost billions of dollars that you'd have to put forward. So the fact that we're here now and people and philanthropists are putting putting their names saying this is uh, unfair. I'm going to put my own hard-earned money on the table. That's the person that I look at and I go – you're the one that I'd like to shake shake your hand and go, thank you for making this work. Because I'm sorry, what the government is able to put forth, although it's appreciated, it's not going to cover the whole cost as per the matching and the the raising of money. You there's this this money has to come from somewhere. It's not just like the government can say, oh, we're just going to pull it from here and we'll pay it off later. It has to come from somewhere, and the fact that they're you know, putting their money where their mouth is, that's really, truly the important thing for me. Well, and Brock, it's a self-worth thing. All right, we talk about how people feel, and we often, as disabled people, I don't care how proficient you are, how successful you are as an athlete, because any athlete will tell you the times of doubt. But when you wrap into that an acceptance that, well, yeah, but we're not paid. That's just not the way it is, or that's never been the way. You know, you start saying, yeah, but hold on. That's got to change, not just so you have money in your pockets, but so up here you feel the right way, the appreciated way, the respected way, because the other guy, the other lady over there, they're getting it. That's important. I can't, I can't tell you how many times in 2008 when that announcement was there, we all sat and scrolled and waited for our announcement, and we sat there, 
and nothing and nothing. And it wasn't about the money. It was about the disrespect that we felt for years of not being valued. Rather, it's good for you. You participated. You're an inspiration. And I think you don't even have a tenth of what I do and know what I do to give me a congratulations and you're an inspiration. No, thank you. Yeah, and that's what you feel, fluffed off as it is, and off you go home to celebrate it in your little corner with your family, not necessarily, you know, go home and find out that everybody gathered at one of the community centres to cheer you on while you were in performance, while they watched on CBC. So give me something, not just a monetary, just give me that dignity that I deserve the same as any other athlete performing and giving up their life for. Brock, thank you, pal. Really nice. I know we were going to talk about this Friday. Um, but with the opening we had, what a topic to bring up today here on the program. And congratulations to the government for making that step, but mostly for those athletes and those who made this possible with their persistence, diligence, and, and not giving up. Really wonderful. Up next on the program, how can we combat the winter blues and how can our employer help possibly? Well, Alicia Yardley from our HR department joins us. She's got some of the answers and we'll get into a conversation about it after this. It's fun, insightful and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. Brock Richardson with me today on the program. Uh, Brock, you know, it's interesting, too, when we look at things like we were discussing a few moments ago, covering off some great news from the uh, Paralympic Spear here in Canada. But when we talk about the fact that this is news, that this is driven by an article, an event, uh, as they made the big announcement in Winnipeg, um, you know, it's so tremendous to actually have the coverage that wouldn't have been there 8, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, I mean, we have built um, where we are today. I think uh, London 2012 was the point to which we had coverage. I think to some extent um, in 2010 when we had it in Canada, that was a big deal too. But we've really come a long, long way with coverage, and it's really good to see. So Awesome. Really nice. Folks, it's time to uh, talk a little bit with Alicia Yardley from our Human Resources Development Department, and we're talking a little bit about how we're feeling, especially January, February, winter blues stuff. Hi, I'm Alicia Yardley, your HR specialist. Join me for career and employment advice right here on Kelly and Ramya. Alicia, welcome. Happy New Year. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. I'm doing very well. Thanks. How about you both? Excellent. Very well. Yeah, it's one of those good news days, so we're feeling pretty good here. Glad to have you with us. And we know that there's uh, people maybe in circumstances not feeling so great, and we get into talking about our mental health on this show a lot, mental wellness, of course. Well, why is employee wellness uh, so important to think about as we launch our way into the new year? So I think employee wellness is important because it's that time of year, um, you know, the holidays are over, we're in that 
law January period uh, mm. where we are, you know, we might have eaten too much, had too much to drink, maybe spent too much over the uh, holiday break. Um, and then, you know, we might have had a little bit of a winter vacation and now we're coming back to work. Um, so there are going to be, you know, feelings of maybe uh, not really feeling your best uh, mentally, even physically, because you might not be used to the commute to work anymore. Um, and it's, you know, just a new year. And I think that's always important to, uh, you know, when you're uh, thinking about like setting up your year, especially as an employee, it's just really important to think about your health and wellness. It feels funny, right, in January, because it always feels like the only thing you really have going on is work. If you're in a situation, you come back, everything's quieted down. And I'm not saying people don't belong, uh, you know, maybe they they belong to uh, some other group or something they do once or twice a week, a choir, uh, whatever it might be. But it really is a focus when you come back in January to get through the winter time and you're going to work and maybe maybe you've planned a, a, a vacation but it's almost like a real switch on on January 2nd absolutely um i know that uh, you know when when i look at just even general mental health trends um you know it, we've got blue monday in january which is supposed mm -hmm. to be the most depressing day of the year um you know we have the february blahs as you mentioned kelly and um of course that's going to come across in how we work um you know we might have uh, what we call presenteeism where you're you're sitting at your desk but you're not really there your mind's elsewhere yeah. you might kind of be on vacation mode or worried about you know the kids or your bills or whatever it might be and and you know that's going to lead to burnout so um you know it is so important that we have maybe some things outside of work because um you know when you're just kind of focusing on work that's going to be really hard too yeah uh, yeah it's, it's funny, funny this year uh the the blue monday fell on brock richardson's birthday oh my god oh, yeah. happy birthday brock <laughs> yeah Belated. Yeah, it really, it really did <laughs> fall on my birthday, and I was like, "Really? Did we have to do this?" Like, I'm already blue enough. That I, I'm getting a year older, let alone now we gotta, you know, deal with Blue Monday. But I was just gonna lament uh, before we moved on the fact that mm -hmm. you could argue that every Monday in January is Blue Monday, just because of every reason we talked about every situation. So it's it's very, it is a very tough month the the days are long it's just it's we sit and look and think when is this over and thankfully we're getting there on that note though alicia what can employees do to protect their overall well-being in january i think in january um you know it's cold uh i mean in toronto it's somewhat warm unusually warm um but there isn't a lot of sun um i think for employees to protect their overall well-being, it's to a lot of people, you know, try to devote themselves entirely to work because that's maybe all they've got at the moment. Um, it is so important to have maybe outside hobbies. And even if you're not dying to get out, it's January, it might be snowy. It, it's so important for health and well-being. Um, and there are virtual events, um, you know, accessible meetups um, over, you know, Zoom or 
whatever platform it might be where you can participate in, for example, a book club. Um, I myself, I go to salsa dancing once a week. Um, I, I, I signed up for that because I knew that, you know, January is not a great month for me. Um, and so it was like, I need to do something to have something to look forward to. And I think for employees, that's so important. It's also really important to make sure that you're getting enough sleep, that you're eating well, um, that you try if you can to get out of your apartment if you're working from home, um, you know, just even for like an hour a day, half an hour a day. It's so important to be able to do that. Um, I, I would say, and as well, um, it's talking to the employer, your employer about what potential resources might be available because at the beginning of the year, um, a lot of employers might be implementing something new. And so finding out what that might be. Okay. Wow, uh, great, great suggestions there. So us employers or uh, that are listening in out there, what can they do to help facilitate that employee wellness? Well, for employers, um, it's really important to make sure that, uh, you know, if possible, you have a robust uh, compensation package. So health and dental benefits, um, you know, we um, potentially a health and spending, a health spending account where, um, you know, people can expense perhaps a gym membership or um, talking to a therapist or, you know, getting a massage. Um, a lot of organizations as well will have separate mental health allowances and um, Par we call them paramedical allowances. So that would be a physiotherapist, massage therapist, chiropractor, nutritionist, naturopath, um, any of those. And so it, it is important to look at your benefit package and see what's available. Um, because if you are not... Uh, you know, taking advantage of that, you're really, um, that's part of your total compensation. So it right. is really important. And for employers, it, you know, it might cost a little bit more, but the cost we get back in terms of employee productivity and engagement makes it worth it. I, I think, Alicia, just knowing it's there, just knowing the company has put the money out yep. to get a package that includes that, it's comforting. And and even if you think, well, we do have that, I, I could contact someone or I could take advantage of that extra support right now, which would really make a difference for me and help out uh, these ideas that kind of float by me that get suggested, those little extra things. We have no idea who that's going to impact, how we just know that not having it, it's not impacting anyone. Well, exactly. Um, you know, and I think it shows an employer's dedication to overall uh, employee well-being. Again, you know, employees who uh, have that overall work-life balance and that positive mental health and engagement. Uh, studies have shown there's lower turnover, there's higher productivity. Um, if you are a for-profit company, that's going to amount potentially to added uh, profits for the organization or oh. added uh you know, added productivity, added, um, you know, resources. And so I think it it really does show that, you know, an employer cares about the employee. And, and it is, like I said, it is just really important for employees to feel like, okay, my company has my back. Is it anonymous to use the company re resources like an EAP? Or would the employer find out and potentially hold it against me? as the employee. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so some organizations offer what's called an employee assistance program. I know I've spoken about that before. Uh, that is, uh, we call them EAPs, and that is a 24-hour-a-day confidential service um, that provides advice like legal advice, diet advice, um, potential therapy counseling advice. Um, they, it is anonymous. Um, the employer does not get data about, usually the employer does not get data about who uses it. Um, we, you know, it, we may not even get data about, um, you know, who's using benefits. Uh, you know, we might just see the cost of potential, um, you know, medications or potential paramedical services, but we don't know who's using them. Um, could the employer hold it against me? I... I would argue not, um, only because let's say, you know, there is a mental health aspect that is a disability and, and there is that obligation to accommodate. Um, and so somebody trying to use the EAP to protect their mental health is, is really important. The employer has to accommodate that. And an employer, because it is anonymous, um, shouldn't really be finding out again, who is using it. They might just find out like, okay, one or two people used it or nothing at all. Um, really, you know, if your employer is holding something like that against you, it, it really says a lot about that employer. Yeah, and it's, you know, Alicia, we think about the things that people worry about when it comes to situations where they might need the support, want to ask for some help, want to share with somebody around them even, and we stop and say, better not do that. And it is so hard because, as you say, yeah, any employer doing that is doing a wrong thing. But yet, if you have your job, you're still looking for, can anyone prove to me that's not happening? And maybe some of us, well, I don't care if they know I'm using it. Oh, well, I need the help. I need the support, which is, you know, you hope the attitude you're able to have. Um, but there is a, a, a lot of that I'm worried about how it'll come back still out there, isn't it? There certainly is. And, um, you know, a lot of employers are trying to move away from that perception where asking for help shouldn't be held against you. Um, I know that, you know, there are some companies that maybe um, are a little bit more archaic in how they think, but, yeah. um, you know, disclosure of needing to use certain services should be accommodated. Um, and also, again, if it is anonymous, the employer shouldn't know about it anyway um you know if you for example need um through the eap you've been referred to a counselor um you know maybe you need an hour to talk to the counselor um you know you you're not obligated to report that to the employer you can say you have an appointment or whatever um you know it's you're not under an obligation to disclose if you don't want to if you do then you know that's that's good too but the employer really shouldn't be holding it against anybody um, you know, and unfortunately, there are some uh, crummy employers out there, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I'm hoping they're the exception rather than the rule. Okay. Um, what else can employees do for our mental health? Because at the end of the day, it's on us at this time of the year to say, I need this. I want to do that. What other things can we do? 
So I think, um, you know, using your internal communication system uh, to engage with other employees, um, if you're having a meeting with an employee, potentially turning your camera on or, you know, just calling somebody up to say hi, reaching out for that connection. One of the other things I encourage is when your shift is done, um, you know, close your laptop, walk away physically, if you can physically leave the building because that is or your home because that shows it's like that separation i'm leaving the office going for a walk um and then i mean i might be coming back to the same apartment and i was working at but hopefully it's that like you're in that evening mode um or you know go in and take a break potentially in another room of your house or apartment um and then you can come back um i think that's really important um and finding maybe one thing per day that makes you smile or laugh. It could be a joke. It could be a funny YouTube clip. Um, it could be, you know, I'm playing with your cat or dog. Um, just so just even that one thing per day that makes you smile, um, have something to look forward to. So if you've booked a vacation or, you know, you're, you're reading a great book and you're going to talk about it in the book club. Um, I think all of those are really good ways for employees to protect their mental health um, and their overall well-being. And then again, you're going to be more productive at the office, um, you know. And and again, don't live to work <laughs> if possible. We should be working to live, um, you know. And it, it, like your your life and your identity should not be wrapped up in the work you do, because studies have shown that leads to a lot of mental health issues and burnout. Um, and so, especially in January, because all the the family stuff is done, um, it's especially important to have those external hobbies or passions. Okay. And it's the simple things, right, that, like, make you stay engaged, that, like, just, it doesn't have to be some big event. It can just be a simple thing that just keeps you engaged, keeps you going. So I think that's really great tips. Thank you. I, you know, it, it is so important and it, it's stuff I try to live by myself. Um, you know, uh, like January is a, is a tough month for so many people and it's very easy to get caught up in, well, I have to work and, you know, maybe I'll work extra or I'll get up early mm. and work or check my yeah. work email on the weekend. Um, and, and we really don't want to be doing that if possible. It, it is so important to be able to just have that walk away, have something else, um, you know, going on, sign up for a book club or a salsa class or improv or, you know, if there's a fun activity you're looking to try. Um January is a great time to do it. Um, yeah. And, you know, what? maybe take that back to the employer and say, like, hey, I'm doing salsa lessons. Maybe I could do a lunch and learn about it. Or, you know, I'm, we're reading this book. Could we start a business book club? Um, you know, if, if you're passionate about maybe starting up something outside of, like, work-related topics at the office, maybe a little bit of social connection, I think that's also a really good way to connect. Hmm. Well, Take the salsa back to the HR department. See if they'll do it. <laughs> Come on, give it a try. Come on, guys. Uh, and also, I think to smile, two hours with us here watching the program, listening in, always a good way to get a smile at least once or twice. And I never want to turn my camera on in those Zoom meetings, but mostly just to bother John Melville. Thanks, Alicia. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alicia Yardley from our HR department. We chat on the uh Fourth Wednesday of each month, and we get into some really interesting topics today. January, that blah month, and uh, how can we 
pull ourselves out? How can our employers help was the topic today. Up next, we'll see what's going on now with Dave Brown. Brock's got that info for us. We have a closing moment about a big lemon. Suck on that lemon. Wow, it's big. We'll talk about it in a couple of minutes and see what's coming up tomorrow on our show. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Mentioned earlier in the program to check out our podcast. It's the Kelly and Ramya podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcast platform. You can check the show out in segment form. You can check the show out in its complete version. We put the full show up just in case you just want to settle back and listen in. We also add to that an audio vanity card. Today, Brock Richardson, he's supplying it for us. Thank you, Brock. Appreciate it. Always nice to have you sitting in on the show. And while you're here, let's talk about the other show. You appear on daily, now with Dave Brown. What's going on tomorrow? Yeah, looks like they have a great show. Our community reporter Nathan Clement will have an update about Team Canada's performance at the 2024 UCI Paracycling Road World Cup in Australia. So that will be really cool. Also, Mark Aflalo from Access Tech Live will discuss the updates on the new features from iOS 17.3. And finally, the science... Oh, no. Um, Sundance Film Festival is underway. Entertainment reporter Michael McNeely will fill us in on that. He's going to be talking about the movie Never Look Away, which is one of the films featured at the festival. So catch that tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. in the morning. MITV, folks, you can also find them via podcast. Uh, do you like lemons? Yes. Like a lot, like to sit there and eat it, just uh, have it just in a drink to add flavor, or do you no, no, it ha- cut it up? Has to be in a drink or in some kind of like pie or something like that. I will not okay. just do it on my own. No. All right. So uh, a woman has been left shocked after her tree has produced an alien lemon the size of her face. Wouldn't fit in your glass. She recently shared a clip of this homegrown lemon in a video that, that where she can be seen holding this monstrous food on its side. On the kitchen counter, she slices it from top to bottom. And in the um, eye-opening clip, Maxine says, moment of truth. Let's see what's in this guy. She holds the lemon together before opening it up. I guess kind of like a book. In shock, she says, whoa. That's cooler than I expected. Now, one of her followers online said, uh, this is Heidi, this came from, wow, wow, nature is stunning. Joey said, oh, this is sick. You're young, you're familiar with that term, Brock. While Jess commented, ooh, mutant lemon. I want to love it, but I'm kind of scared too, Lynn wrote. So this is this amazing reaction to these huge uh, alien lemons, as she likes to refer to them. Now, I remember, Brock, when I was working on stuff for AMI-TV, and I've talked about this on the show, I went to film a piece at an apple orchard. It was fall, and I was going through talking about apples, and I'm going to tell you, I was surprised at the size of these things. Now, I, I was as a kid, I was a fan of the Smurfs, and they said the Smurfs, each one was three apples tall. Well, these would have been Smurfs half the size, as tall as me, judging by the size of these apples. But because I, I was at an orchard, 
made it different than those little ones we get in the bags in the grocery store, pal. Yes, for sure. When you see oversized anything that you think, wow, this is not what it would normally be. It would be kind of cool. And she sounded very proud of her big alien lemons. And I think I'm going to go look up the video because I'm now intrigued. Size of her face. Now, I'm not sure I like alien. If I were watching, I think for some reason I'm thinking, I don't know if I'd be eating that. Like, I don't know what would happen to me. Like, Why? I would get... Because it, it just makes me nervous when you say you don't know anything about it. It's big. It's abnormally big. What's wrong to make that happen? That's where the brain first goes, whether that's right or wrong. So I don't know. I mean, like you, I'd probably be putting a little bit of it in a beverage, a nice glass of water, and see where we go from there. Speaking of going from there, folks, tomorrow we begin the program, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Hopefully you can be with us. Fern Lullum will be on the show, and we're going to talk about emotional triggering and finding out how we can respond differently to it. We have our weekly roundtable with longtime contributor Mike Fair. We'll be dabbling into all sorts of conversations as we did today on the show. Brock, thanks again for being with me, pal. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Fedora's off to you, folks. Talk to you tomorrow, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Kelly and Rumya. Hey guys, it's Brock Richardson, co-host of today's Kelly and Ramia, and it's such a pleasure for me to be back in the fold and doing this again. I really, really enjoy uh, working on Kelly and Ramia, and it's a lot of fun, and I learn so much. Anyway, uh, the, what I wanted to talk to you guys about today was this idea of choice of words can mean so much, and I'll even take it a step further and say Choice of words and intention can mean so much. I was at a recent uh, doctor's appointment, and the doctor did the testing with my eyes and did all that. And then at the very end of the appointment, she said, just so you know, because of how nearsighted you are, you may run the risk of going completely blind. And I know that this doctor's intention wasn't to scare me. It was just to inform and do her job and that's totally fine but my reaction was totally just to oh my god freeze like what did you just say and when I froze I didn't really have a chance to ask her what it was and so I went to my specialist a couple of days later and I asked the question and she clarified some things with me and made me feel a lot better about it but it really is a lesson in which where the person giving the message has to be careful how they word things. And the person receiving the message also has to interpret what it meant and what the intention was. Because things can really get really askew really quickly if it doesn't get done that way. Thankfully, it all worked out. But it taught me a lesson of make sure you understand before you walk out of the room or the situation and feel really, really uh, confused and somewhat... Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. Scared.